everybody. Welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, her pronouns. We're back this week to discuss a lighter subject because, y'all, shit is just heavy. So heavy. Hey, y'all. I'm Alyssa. I use she, her, hers pronouns as well. It has been quite the week. Quite. So we're just going to talk all things grad school. We asked y'all to send us questions on social media for this episode. Thank you very much. We will be getting to those in our final segment. And of course, we'll be bringing some of that dope analysis that you listen to us for. Right. So before we dive in, we just want to say thank you for all of the support, financial and otherwise, that we've been receiving. Your emails, your DMs the rating and sharing of our episodes, and all of these forms of support are things that we cherish. So muchísimas gracias. I just want to check in because we haven't done that in a while. Mm-hmm. Like, Alyssa, how are you doing? How are things going? Like, What's been bringing you joy lately? Yeah, things are going well. They're going well. I have been powering through some of these tasks that I have on my to-do list. I've been Period. revising grant applications, reading for my prospectus, you know, just just getting the work done. But I think the joy for me has been coming in the form of the weather, not the Christina Sharp meaning of the weather. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, you know, it's been warm and sunny here in New York recently. And so I'm just loving all of the flowers that are blooming. I've seen cherry blossoms and there's tulips and lilies. And, oh, I love those. Yeah. I love tulips. And so I have sunflowers and calla lilies in my living room and they just brighten my day. It's really, it's really pleasant. Um, (laughs) But how are you doing? I feel like I'm doing as good as possible given everything um, going on personally and Mm -hmm. also just in the world. Um, But I'm so happy to be on the mic today and to be in your iridescent presence. Um, (laughs) And I'm really looking forward to the end of the semester and a summer break of some sort. Like the plan is y'all, I plan to have a healed girl summer, meaning, you know, thank you 2020 and the beginning of 2021 (laughs) for the reflection that you brought in the and the pause that you brought, but I want a healed girl summer with a little sprinkle of toxicity, you know, just a little sprinkle. <laughs> just like, just a tad of mess. Just, just a, a tad of mess. Tad. Um, not too much, because I'm trying to I'm trying to maintain what my therapist has has taught me. <laughs> um, so with that, do you think we should get into our word for the day? Yes. All right, let's do that. What's the word? The word today is intersectionality. Where do we start? (laughs) Intersectionality (laughs) has been used and abused so much over the years. I I cannot remember where I saw this, but someone said, y'all got Kimberly Crenshaw regretting (laughs) coining intersectionality and Barbara Smith doing damage control on identity politics because y'all don't read. Mm. People don't Mm. read. Mm. But I think in order to help people get there, let's just set the stage by talking about the history of feminism. Right. So 
the development of feminism is often divided into these waves, like these yep. different periods of history. Right. So it's actually four waves now, which I learned mm. today. I'm aging myself, but when I was an undergrad, there were only three waves. So I'm crying. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, think when I, I have crossed over. <laughs> three, two, honestly. Um, learned, <laughs> a, learned about this fourth one for our episode today. But... Um, <laughs> Like, let's be clear that when we are discussing this history, we're discussing feminism as movements and ideologies that um, advocate for the equality of the sexes within the U.S. context. So we're not talking about African feminisms. We're not talking about European feminisms. In particular, we're focusing on the U.S. today. And there were four waves, I'm sure many more to come. Mm -hmm. The first wave being the 19th and early 20th century, when white liberal feminism had turned on this kind of gaining political equality. And particularly, the focus for white liberal feminists was voting rights, aka suffrage. So if you remember Elizabeth Cady Stanton, <laughs> that was her bag, right? Suffrage. Um, but also thinking about how to improve sexual, economic, and reproductive rights for white women in particular mm -hmm. as well. So the second wave arrived in the 1960s, and people credit Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, with sparking second wave feminism. So this is the era of feminism that's often associated with the phrase, the, person, the personal is political, excuse me, uh, which essentially means that aspects of our personal lives are politicized. So women's inequalities are linked through these sexist power structures that set binaries where mm -hmm. men, male on one side, right, and female, feminine on the other. And so this awareness of the structural nature of sexism came as a result of different consciousness raising groups. So these different political groups that came forward that shared their personal experiences and these women became conscious that the challenges they faced related to being a woman wasn't actually personal, but it was the result of a structure of power called patriarchy. Exactly. Then we get the third wave feminism and that's where things get really interesting because people start mm -hmm. splitting off, doing their own things, right? The fights, the riots. <laughs> <laughs> So we start getting these feminists rooted in the second wave, taking things further. So we're thinking Audre Lorde, Gloria Anseldua, Cherry Moraga, Bell Hooks, and so on. And so they're thinking with post-structuralism in order to take apart what being a woman, what femininity mm -hmm. means, and then challenging the over-representation of upper-middle-class white women in the movement, as mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. And so then they're also bringing in these analyses of sexuality. And so people often say that the third wave took off in the 90s. And I'm like, now that I've learned more, I've grown more in my, in my knowledge politics, I'm like, but hang on a minute. Mm -hmm. You have black women, particularly black queer women. I'm thinking Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, June Jordan, Angela Davis, the Combahee River Collective. They're writing in the 70s and 80s to expose the interlocking systems of power that define women's experiences. So they're doing this sooner than people, people attribute the third wave feminism to happening. So, you know, that sounds pretty typical. Part of the course. <laughs> exactly. we, we'd be like half a century ahead of everybody. Else. <laughs> Big facts. 
<laughs> I, I mean, well, exactly. You say half a century and people are like, hang on, that doesn't add up. But actually you have black women like Claudia Jones and Louise Thompson Patterson who were thinking about intersectionality before the term was coined. They were thinking mm-hmm. about how to center black women's experiences in order to like bring us towards liberation before Kumbahi. So I would argue that the third wave started much earlier than the 90s. But, you know, we can just let y'all have that. (laughs) Y'all can have it. (laughs) Because we know what we got. We're good. We're good. Um, And then this is, so the third wave is also when uh, standpoint theory becomes known or becomes discussed. So standpoint theory, it says that a person's social position influences how they see the world and consequently what they know. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. So mm-hmm. I'll just say about the fourth wave that it started in 2012. It's defined by justice for women and exposing sexual harassment and violence against women using social media. So if that sounds like Me Too, you would be right. That is the pinnacle of fourth wave feminism. I'm saying that. I don't think anybody who um, <laughs> legitimately studies like digital feminisms would say that mm-hmm. or has said that, but maybe they have. Um, but I think that that actually reflects the kinds of conscious ra- consciousness raising activism and meetings that, you know, they had. So, you know, social media and hashtags are kind of the consciousness raising of the new millennium. That's really interesting then how they, I don't know, now I'm going to have to read about how they actually demarcate between these waves. Um, and if they are supposed to be waves, then do they, they be coming in and out? Mm. Yeah, like. Do they end or does it just a new one comes? Um, well, I think, yeah, I mean, they, they don't, right? Like if, you, if what, I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm seeing and when I was, you know, refreshing my, my memory about all of these things is that they each take parts, each wave has taken parts of the previous. So they kind of build on each other and then they mm-hmm. go back towards other things. So if, if, you know, my evaluation of like Me Too being a consciousness raising exercise and sort of activism then, you know, they're taking stuff from the second wave feminism mm-hmm. and then applying it in the fourth wave. So I guess in a sense, they do kind of recur. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> Waves, water. Love it. Now, all of that to say, right, intersectionality as a term was coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw to theorize these interlocking systems of power that oppress Black women and other women of color. So she she uses the term in a paper she gave called Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. And she further develops intersectionality as a legal term in her article, Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color, which was published in 1991. So in this article in particular, she discusses the three types of intersectionality. There is structural intersectionality, political intersectionality, and representational intersectionality. And she discusses these terms and how they figure into the lives of intimate partner violence survivors of color. So structural intersectionality examines the structural experiences of folks at the intersections of these social categories that we have. So categories such as race, gender, sexuality, class, etc. 
political intersectionality then examines the erasures, the fissures, and the coalitions that can happen at these structural intersections. And so in this article, she talks about how feminist and anti-racist politics, which focus on white women and black men respectively, like effectively erase violence against women of color, which we've heard that we've all heard that, right? Mm -hmm. All the women are white, all the, all the black people are men. And finally, representational intersectionality, which she discusses in this article, examines how the cultural depictions of women of color can actually occlude their experiences with violence. When I have conversations with students about intersectionality, I, I tend to bridge all of these different definitions together. Um, and I offer them this piece. Right, which is that intersectionality is a framework of analysis that considers the convergence of structures of domination and the lived experiences of people. So unlike what you may have heard, right, intersectionality is not about identity. Mm -mm. It's not about you know, collecting your identity coins as you run the race through life. It's actually about the forces that be, right? So these structural forces that create what it means to be black or create what it means to be a woman and then these social conditions that converge around that mm -hmm. right i think that's really important right like if we go back to who she's drawing on right like this these are black feminist analyses and so we can think about the kombahi river collective you know they call them interlocking oppressions not intersecting identities right so these systems of race and gender and class domination, they converge in ways that make the harm done by each inextricable from each other. I'm going to try to give a little example. I, this weekend, had a nice time out, you know, going outside <laughs> for once. Hey, outside. I know. What is outside? <laughs> Who is she? <laughs> Outdoors. I haven't, been, I haven't, haven't, uh, been, haven't uh, spoken to her in a while. <laughs> so I learned while I was out that New York has a first and first. So it's the intersection of First Avenue and First Street. Hmm. So if I'm standing in the middle of the of that intersection and someone says, someone calls me, they're trying to meet up with me, and they're like, hey, are you on First Street or First Avenue? I'm gonna be like, I don't know. Both? Wow. Is literally impossible to say. Okay, now say someone, now say I'm standing on that street and someone assaults me and I have to prove, okay, I'm thinking about prove in the legal sense because Kimberly Crenshaw is a legal scholar after all. Mm -hmm. I have to prove that myself and the other person were on First Street or First Avenue. How do I do that? I can't. It's impossible <laughs> because I'm literally at the intersection of these two places. So Crenshaw was saying that for black women, you don't know where sexism ends and where racism begins because they're experienced simultaneously. And so she used this to challenge the limitations of an anti-discrimination law that fails to protect black women. And so the way I saw this explained was that, quote, the particular intersection where racism and sexism meet targets black women in a way that is invisible to people who insist on universal experiences of sexism and racism as separate forces, end quote. And so I think that the way people use intersectionality today, which of course has now led Kimberly Crenshaw to try to differentiate it by calling it everyday intersectionality, the way people are using this 
is a conflation of standpoint theory and intersections, you know, intersecting identities, if we want to call it that. It's so people treat it as though everyone sits at the intersection of some combination of racism, sexism, ableism, classism, homophobia, and then every ism and phobia that is leveled against you compounds the experience of oppression. That's not intersectionality. <laughs> like that's how we ended up with this like oppression Olympics where people try to rank themselves like, sure, I'm white, but I'm a poor lesbian. You may be black, but you're straight and middle class. So who's more oppressed? That's not, that's not how it works. And it's also not useful to ask that question because oppression isn't quantifiable. Right. Like the math is literally not mathing. <laughs> the social studies are not socially studying. I need people. I'm like, <laughs> when people bring that up, I'm like, what? That doesn't even make sense. This kind of thinking flattens difference and it makes all forms of identity equal, quote, mm -hmm. in the sense where like race equals gender equals sexuality. And you can do some calculus, you know, you can find a derivative. These are the math terms. Girl, I remember here, girl, here, here you go with, this, with the asymptotes again. We're going to get to the asymptote. I don't even know. <laughs> the asymptotes. Yo, this is the math I remember from high school and discover, you know, at the end of the day that we're all the same, you know, and it's like <sighs> deep Negro sigh. <laughs> it, because, you know, what does that do? Like, what does that actually do if we're trying to end oppression, right? I also get really annoyed when someone says, like, people are intersectional. Oh, I don't know if you've heard yeah. that, where people yes. call themselves, like, intersectional, or they say, oh, I'm an intersectional feminist, or this person is intersectional. And I really think it's, like, a euphemism for saying, like, a person with marginalized identities. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, like, you actually cannot be an intersectional person. Like that actually <laughs> doesn't make sense. And if we're going to go down that line of thinking, we are all in fact, quote, intersectional for we all sit at the intersections of interlocking systems of oppression. So what are you, you're just trying to say somebody is different and that's, that's weird, right? <laughs> and the difference is, right, for some of us is that our identities are marked at these intersections where other people's identities have actually been normalized. So we don't even notice them or see them. Yeah, I just you bringing up the normal. It just reminded me of this podcast I was listening to about the anti-Black origins of ableism mm. and whew, the disability studies intervention to say that it's the idea of normal and the normal and what is normal that oppresses us stunned Ooh. me. Period. Because it's like, what if nothing was normal and we literally just accepted difference as that rather than variations or aberrations on some standard revolution? Like, I don't know. What if? What if we could? What if? <laughs> what if we could? And I know sometimes <laughs> I explain to people because people always want to be like, oh, you're anthropologists and, you know, well, what about the Caucasoid and the Negroid and, and these like <laughs> scientific versions of, of, of race? Mm. And I'm like... I'm not a biological anthropologist, so I don't, you know, we don't deal in, in those kinds of concepts. I don't know how people really, or if right. they continue to use them, to be honest. I, I don't think they do. I think everyone. That's been debunked by now. That, okay. Thank goodness. Right, yeah. You know, race is not biological and, you know, there's, there's lots of research out about that.
Exactly. Race is not biological. And so the way I usually try to explain it is like, because I want to, I want us to move away from like this race is a social construction thing mm-hmm. and make sure that people know that it is the meanings that we attribute to physical characteristics that are the problem, right? So yeah. it's like every, people have different colored eyes. I think almost everybody probably has different colors, different shades. If someone was that attuned to color, they would be like, everyone has these very different colored eyes. Some of them are on the same spectrum. But we don't attribute the same kinds of racialized meanings to different eye colors. They just are. Like, imagine we started, like, segregating people based on their eye color. It would be, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's like, that's what people do with skin color. Well, I've I have done mean, with skin do, color. People do when they freak out, when they see darker skinned people with blue eyes. Well, so there is, <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying, though, as far as, like, it's not like a, you're typified, right? Like, it's not like, oh, you have blue eyes, so that means that your people, blue all blue-eyed people need to live in a certain kind of house in a certain kind of neighborhood mm-hmm. to do X, Y, and Z. And yeah, like it's it's interesting what characteristics then become like attached to race, as you're saying, like hair or nose shape, um, lips, ears, ears, shoulder, shoulder width, <laughs> um, <laughs> hip width, you know, the things that tend, people tend to look at and say, oh, that's what makes you black or that's what makes you not Hmm, that's interesting. That's uh, that's how I generally will explain it to people, but mm-hmm. it's in progress. Anywho, <laughs> we are. <laughs> We're Here traveling we down a rabbit hole. We uh, are. We could talk about this <laughs> Yeah, I think it's important for us to keep in mind, though, that. We're bringing up intersectionality um, as a framework of analysis to think about particular experiences in graduate school and beyond. Mm-hmm. And so we thought that what we're reading today would allow for us to kind of talk about both graduate school experiences, but also experiences with faculty on the other side. So Alyssa, what are we reading today? Today we're reading the article, Sitting at the Kitchen Table, Field Notes from Women of Color in Anthropology by Tammy Navarro, Bianca Williams, and Adia Ahmad. Tammy Navarro is the assistant director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women. She received her PhD in cultural anthropology from Duke University. Her research interests include neoliberalism, capital, gender and labor, development, identity formation, globalization and transnationalism, race, racialization and ethnicity, and Caribbean studies. Bianca Williams is an associate professor in three departments. So in the Department of Anthropology, Women and Gender Studies, and Critical Psychology at CUNY Graduate Center. She received her PhD in Cultural Anthropology from Duke University. And her first monograph, The Pursuit of Happiness, Black Women, Diasporic Dreams, and the Politics of Emotional Transnationalism was published with Duke University Press. Adia Ahmad is an Associate Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs at George Washington University. She received her PhD in cultural anthropology from Duke University. Her research interests include gender and feminist studies, Islam and Muslim societies, transnationalism and globalization, migration and diaspora, tourism, and she works in the Middle East and South Asia. So I went to Duke for undergrad. So I'm feeling a little, you know, it's a little cool to (laughs) see this. Um, It shows me that something good actually can come from that place. Um, (laughs) 
What do you mean you came from that place too? And you are something great. I'm, I am reclaiming the pieces of my soul that have been left. <laughs> but, and I'm just kidding. There are lots of good things that come from Duke. I want you all to keep in mind, right, that this article was published in 2013, which means that it was probably written 2011, 2012, the way academia works that I'm learning, right? But many of the truths that they posit are actually timeless. Uh, Navarro, Williams, and Ahmad begin this article by framing where they enter in the introduction entitled Gender, Race, and Anthropological Practice. And in that introduction, they astutely explain how anthropology, through its ideological, institutional, and pedagogical practices, continues to harm scholars of color, particularly women of color. The authors are uniquely positioned to experience this harm because they are junior faculty at their respective institutions. And this article is based somewhat upon their own experiences of isolation and violence within the academy and the discipline itself. And though these institutions, so the academy and the institution of anthropology, right, they both aim to be more diverse, right, they actually fail to reconcile how their diversity efforts intensify racialized and gender depression. Right? And one thing that I thought was really interesting that they noted as evidence of this, right, is like how student evaluations are one particular site of violence. Because they talk about how student evaluations are one particular site of violence, where students state how they are disappointed because they have been cheated, quote, out of a real learning experience. One, because they're not taught traditional canon, and two, because they're not taught by objective, quote, white cisgender men. And I've had experiences as a TA with that, so I was like, testify. <laughs> testify listen i had a student write in my evaluations that i'm condescending but we'll we'll get to that for y'all we'll get to that so i think that's i think what they're saying is is a really important intervention right like anthropology as a discipline perpetuates the idea that real anthropology only happens across lines of a binary difference so anthropology operates with the understanding that there is a self i.e. me, that is opposed to the other, i.e. someone else out there. And so women of color anthropologists often find themselves written off as not real anthropologists because it's assumed that there's no difference between self and other in their research. So we're accused of doing me-search, like research is me-search, while our white counterparts are not we're assumed to be the native anthropologist and subsequently have to do a lot of work to justify our place in the discipline while justifying our place in academia. Like, that is just exhausting. Emotionally, physically, psychically, we tied. Tied. And then another conundrum that the authors highlight is the disproportionate burden of affective labor, a.k.a. that service work that women of color have to undertake as faculty. Oh, child. Mm. Like, so much of that work that we do, even as graduate students, mm -hmm. and I imagine, um, Alyssa, when you become faculty member somewhere, right, like, it will not have an appropriate place on our CVs. We can't list out how many students we spend in office hours, like how many students come, how many hours we spend in office hours. And it's often work that is unseen and underappreciated. And unpaid. 
that part. Um, and it's unseen, underappreciated, and unpaid because it's feminized labor, right? Mm-hmm. Affective labor is, is feminized. So anthropology as a discipline, at least in the last 25 plus years, maybe we'll say 30 plus years, it has seen itself as being the discipline that kind of tackles these different hierarchies around race, around gender, etc. But it is rife, right, with these forms of violence in and of itself. And so the authors want to push readers to consider how the problematic construction of self as this me, but self as Black women, we know the self is not necessarily referring to us, right? Like not the self is not mm-hmm. necessarily us. But this anthropological self and other um, actually foreclosed the possibility for anthropologists to evaluate scholars of color's work effectively, right? Like, does this dualistic thinking actually account for the exclusion of certain forms of scholarship? And I would say, yeah, honey, it does. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they noted was that so many Black anthropologists, particularly Black women anthropologists, find homes and departments outside of anthropology. And this might actually be the reason why. They suggest that the fetishization of difference that is endemic to our discipline actually makes it a hostile place for Black people and some other folks of color. And I, and I condition that, some other folks of color. Mm-hmm. Very intentional about that. <laughs> that. So we often run to like ethnic studies or gender studies departments where we're shielded from some of that, that violence. And one of the things that I also find illuminating about their intervention is that they're actually trying to take a structural approach to the race and gender problem that is anthropology tends to have. So they're saying boldly, right, that it's not enough to diversify these departments. It's not enough to hire one-off young Black person here, one queer person here, one um, non-Black person of color here. It is actually in order for women of color, for students of color, for queer students, et cetera, to thrive in this discipline, right? Anthropologists literally have to change the way that we think, period. Anthropology mm-hmm. has to change the way that it constitutes itself. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this is a conversation that we keep coming back to and like, we keep coming back to that, like what to do with anthropology? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's beyond my pay grade to answer, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Study. So I, I think that I feel like we've alluded to this in a few episodes. And so I really want to talk about this accusation of me search. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I've gotten it that much because I research Martinique. And even though it's the Caribbean, it's different enough, Right to offer that, that binary, you know, that, that self-other difference. So I can be quote-unquote objective while I'm there. But I think, you know, we all know, we all know that one, two, three, all PhD students who are studying hmm, Africa from... You know, the, the comfort of their New York City apartments. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll, we'll just go with not Africa. <laughs> And it's like, are you ever asked to defend your choice of site? It's, it's automatically assumed that they've chosen this place because their academic training has led them to ask questions that can be answered in that place. 
Mm. Right. So we talk about this in our episode on reparations, the object of study versus the object of observation. For white anthropologists, it's always assumed that their object of study, as an example, you know, we can go with kinship, led them to their object of observation. And that would be in this in this example, Africans. Okay. But then you think about Dr. Rishé Barnes, who we had on the podcast, and she also studies kinship in its more contemporary sense. And then people always just assumed that she was studying herself. And then that study of herself led to a kinship study. But why mm. can't it have been that she was, you know, reading all of this great work on kinship and thought, I have some questions about kinship, and then was walking around and thought, wow, what a fascinating kinship situation that's going on in, in these middle-class Black women at this library where I met them, right? Instead, you know, as the authors write, our, quote, bodies and identities are always on display and actively implicated, end quote. Right. And it's kind of like stemming back to what I started saying earlier, just like we as Black women in particular can never be the self, right? We're always the other. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we're always studying ourselves because we're, we're always already the other. I'm going to get into this later when we, when we get to the what in the world section, but I am actively implicated in my research all the time. I get accused of studying myself actually quite a bit. Mm. Um, and it's been happening for a long, long, long time <laughs> since I started in undergrad doing my work. And, but I will say to, to break away from that, like when I TA'd, I got one bad review from a white male student because I have followed class policy and gave him partial credit when he turned in an assignment over a week late, you Mm. know, and he shouldn't have gotten even that partial credit, but I'm not even going to go there. (laughs) So he sent me an email after he, you know, sent me an email after he saw his grade and he was like, I sent you an email saying I was going to turn it in late. And that was it, right? Not like an explanation, but just that I sent you emails and I was going to turn it in late. And y'all, this is pre-pandemic before y'all try to roast me. Mm-hmm. So this is like pre-corona, pre-like, it's a pandemic. Why you expect students to do work? Like this was before this time, right? Where, where students, we were seeing each other in person and we had classroom policies and things to follow. Not to mention it wasn't your policy, right? It was the instructor's right. policy. And that's how we get paid is by following other people's policies so right but of course like I was the only TA in the class and I was a black woman the professor was a white man um so the professor didn't get the email about the grade I got it and it was not a nice email but him sending me the email before was supposed to be like reason enough for me not to treat him fairly so then the professor had to intervene eventually. Like I CC the professor on my response and the correspondence <laughs> afterwards because the student actually got disrespectful. And I know like thinking about how my body and identity is always on display and actively implicated. Like I know that if I weren't a black woman, he would not have popped off like that. Mm-hmm. Like Tim and his name is not Tim, but Tim would not have said what he said. You keep picking on Tim. I don't know. This is the second mythical time you used him. <laughs> There's a mythical white man named Tim out there whose ears are ringing right now. But um, I don't know what this is. But yeah, like, he would not have popped off on me like that if I were Susan and I looked differently. Or if I were a Tim, he would not have popped off like that. So 
I just think about that, like, even as TAs, our bodies are implicated in, in how students even respond to us or evaluate us. And, like, like, didn't you get a bad comment from a student, too? Like, you talked about it earlier. Like, it was, I remember you talking about it, though, like, when we were in decolonizing methodologies together and you were asking people whether you come off as condescending because it had actually really bothered you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm very sensitive, y'all. I think it wasn't it wasn't even a university evaluation, right? It was one that I took upon myself to give out midway through the semester because for me, I think teaching is important. I actually really enjoy it. And I wanted to learn about what students needed and how I could better help them understand the material. And so, you know, I'm trying to, I'm being, I'm out here trying to be reflexive as the anthropologists do, busy navel gazing. And I'm like, am I condescending or am I just black in a position that the student couldn't reconcile me being in? And that's the tea. That's the tea. Like, so I'm asking, I'm like, am I condescending? No, I, am I though? And I think, you know, I'll say that that might have been uh, the inception of my American racial consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, the authors talk about this, right? They explain that women of color professors or even TAs, they face discrimination because of students' pre-existing race, class, and gendered expectations of what constitutes a professor. So again, we're kind of seeing these effects of intersectionality. Right. They also were talking about how students often vent their frustrations about not having a, quote, real professor that is this kind of white man. Um, and we can argue that even in some disciplines, right, there's an expectation for an Asian man to be the type of professor right in their evaluations which i i can't imagine an evaluation coming across my computer screen where somebody's child says i wish i had been taught by tim <laughs> like i i don't know what i would do pack my bags maybe i don't know but and you know thankfully navarro williams and ahmad did not do that right mm -hmm. <laughs> and in this essay in particular right they talk about this kind of the corporatization of the university and how the reduced endowments and other things of that nature have actually pushed universities to operate more like businesses and so when they do that right they treat students as consumers and they say, well, classes are supposed to be for consumer satisfaction, right? The customer is never wrong kind of idea. And so these evaluations, they don't just help professors improve courses, right? They're actually helping students to decide what classes to take. They Departments use those to decide which courses to fund. Mm -hmm. Those evaluations also fold into tenure files for assistant professors who are moving towards promotion. And they help assess the professor's value in this kind of higher education economy. So black women are actually systematically disadvantaged and predisposed to negative reviews for reasons out of their control, such as what they choose to wear, what, what their hair looks like. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I remember a black woman professor saying that a student wrote an evaluation about a time that she came into class and she looked angry mm. and the student felt like she couldn't learn because this professor looked angry, you know? Um, and that actually causes black women to be denied tenure because tenure committees don't basically, they don't account for these like 
structural issues. They don't com- they don't take out the confounding data to see, you know, what's going on. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, are these teaching evaluations really to help students choose their classes or whatever? Or is it just a form of surveillance? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a very insidious mm-hmm. form, right? Mm-hmm. Are y'all well, pleasing the customer? <laughs> and I think, you know, question mark, that might be somebody's dissertation work, <laughs> teacher evaluations, surveillance. I think so. I think so. I think something that was also really interesting to me about the article was that the authors kind of turned the ethnographic gaze inward, in a sense, and they discuss vignettes of their own actual factual experiences as women of color. And I want to say this to pause, like, Dr. Navarro, Dr. Williams, and Dr. Ahmad, if y'all ever listen to our little podcast, um, I just want to say that I'm so sorry that you had to endure such racist and misogynist violence. And we know that we are a community of women of color who experience things to varying degrees. So just know Zora's daughters, we we with y'all in, you know, in coalition and actually in experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I just want to like, to encourage you who are listening, right, to make sure that y'all actually read the article for yourselves and engage with it because we're not able to do it justice in in our short podcast today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think we'll end this section with a direct quote from them. It is necessary that the academy take a holistic approach to all faculty members. And I'll add students. Students, please. <laughs> We argue that the wellness, comfort, and value of women of color and their research must become an institutional priority in order for the climate of academia to change. And with that, should we move on to the next section? What? Yeah. In the world? In the world. What? What? (laughs) So we asked y'all to write in with questions and woo did y'all have something to say to add y'all delivered y'all delivered (laughs) delivered (laughs) delivered for real um and so we're going to answer some of the questions and themes because there were several kind of similar ones and then some of the questions were actually really specific so we'll try to answer them as best as we can and if we don't answer your question please charge it to my head not to my heart i heard somebody say that one time oh i like that i don't quite know what it means but (laughs) i'm gonna just insert it here and if we don't answer it right it's probably because we actually don't have an answer to your question which is possible we don't know everything or we can't answer it like we just there's no way for us to um in the time we have but we want to encourage you all to look at all of the resources that are out there for applying and staying in grad school for black women students of color and first generation students i recommend that y'all check out the professors in book and blog i got that book summer before i started graduate school and it reality check honey reality check and also the andover institute for the recruitment of teachers and black girl does grad school those are also really good resources yes i think you all can check out this is particularly for stem you can check out malika grayson's book hooded a black girl's guide to the phd Mm. i also read 57 ways to screw up in grad school which is a lot about the so-called hidden curriculum, which are, you know, the unwritten and unofficial rules, values, perspectives, and expectations (laughs) that aren't explicitly Mm -hmm. taught, but that you're kind of expected to know. So Mm -hmm. there's this kind of grad school habitus, if you want to use that. 
that some of us don't have, myself included. Y'all, in undergrad, I almost never went to office hours. I didn't know you could just show up in professors' offices and be like, hey, what's up? Tell me about your life. <laughs> That's actually pretty common, though, mm-hmm. for, especially for first-generation students. I know. You don't, you're like, oh, I'm not, I didn't know that office hours could be like networking. And I hate that word, but like networking, quote, or like yeah, me neither. ways to build relationships with folks. Yeah. Didn't know. Now I know. I go hang out with people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I, you know, I was going to say the same. It's just it's it's a disadvantage. It's one of the disadvantages that first generation students have in higher education, especially if you went to public school. I feel like in private school, they'll be a little bit more like, just send emails. Here's how you send a proper email to your professor and things like that. So, um, But one of the things that I thought we might explain, since it has and will come up, are titles. I was going to say the assistant and associate professor, but I think we'll just go with the PhD titles. So since mm-hmm. I'm a PhD student, Brendan has said she's a PhD candidate. Some folks are probably like, what are y'all talking about? Why are you different PhDs? <laughs> So this is, again, like in a North American context, a PhD candidate is someone who has advanced to candidacy. So they've completed all of the requirements. So it's usually courses and then comprehensive exams to earn a PhD, except the dissertation. So you'll also hear people say, I'm ABD. So that means all but dissertation. Some people will also masters out of the PhD. This is a, this is a term, mastering out. Um, and that means that they'll leave once they receive their MA or the MPhil. And that has a whole different set of associations that we won't get into. But at Columbia, after two years of courses, you receive an MA, a Master of Arts. After your third year, when you pass exams and defend your prospectus, which is what I am about to do and Brenda did last year, then you advance to candidacy. You receive an MPhil or a master, Master's of Philosophy. And so that's the most advanced master's qualification that you can receive. And then in the, U- in, in the UK, they, you know, you can actually go to study for an MPhil. It's usually a research master's and it's two years versus the one year MA. And then you write and defend your dissertation. Bam, you have a PhD, a doctor <laughs> of philosophy. You know, like, is that easy? Just a little emerald. Yes, yes, just, you know. A just... little emerald, a little salt bay. <laughs> bam here it is it's phd i wish um the other thing that i want to make sure that folks know is that phds are the og doctors okay phds were the first to use the title doctor and then Mm. the mds Mm. the physicians started using it so don't hesitate to call me Dr. James in a few years. Okay. Honey, you know, you know, <laughs> I will not. One thing I won't do is hesitate to call you Dr. James. <laughs> I'm taking in what you said, honestly. <laughs> and thinking about like the different titles and as someone who had no clue coming into graduate school, what any of those things meant. I think it's so helpful to break these things down, right? And so many of y'all are starting graduate school in the fall or even thinking about applying in the fall. And for those of you who are at that stage where you're thinking about applying, believe it or not, you should actually start planning your applications this summer. Mm -hmm. Deadlines in December. (laughs) Deadlines in December. I know it's April and you're like, what girl? But I, am that kind of person when it comes to my future I try I, I tend to want to have a plan 
I might not have a plan for tomorrow, but if you ask me about five years, I, I think I have a little plan for that. <laughs> and so I actually started my application process more than a year before I actually turned in my application. So wow. I was starting <laughs> fall 2015 for the admission cycle in fall 2016 to be admitted in fall 2017. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> and there's actually a story behind that that maybe I'll tell one day. But <laughs> I have a whole timeline for what to do basically each month or quarter of the year leading up to that application that was gifted to me by Dr. Ashley Farmer, who is now at UT Austin. Thank you so much. And she is like her guidance, her mentorship, as well as other Black women in the academy are the reason why I'm here in graduate school today. And yes. what I did, I, I'm the type of person that like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to send an email and, you know, <laughs> if they respond, they respond. If they don't, they don't. And I literally sent um, Dr. Keisha Khan Perry an email and I was like, I'm a black woman and I, I'm interested in this and I want to go to grad school. And she was like, yeah, call me. And we literally talked on the phone for an hour. And wow. she was like, do this, do this, do this, do this. And like, I literally would not be here without, without her. So thank you. Thank you. But even in talking about this, I'm thinking like we've discussed our journeys to anthropology as a discipline, right? As PhDs in anthropology, mm -hmm. but we've actually never discussed the application process. And so I want to just ask, like, what was yours, Alyssa? And like, how did you go about applying? Ooh, uh, hmm. <laughs> it's a funny <laughs> story. All right, buckle up, everybody. Uh, <laughs> so in Canada, you do a master's first. Um, and so our PhD programs are a little bit shorter than in the US, generally. So I was in the last year of my MA writing my major research paper which was, is this like a step down from a thesis? And I was like, ah, I'm going to take another year off, reflect on whether or not I really want to, you know, do the PhD, continue mm -hmm. this. Take some time. That was, you know, when the whole coffee revival project just dropped in my mailbox. If someone remembers, I think I told that story already. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, someone in my program, she's also doing a PhD on some really cool stuff around the temporality of, of the slow food movement in Italy. And she was like, hey, you should check out Columbia. You know, Vanessa Agar-Jones is there. Paige West is there. And that would make a lot of sense for your interests, right? Like coffee and Martinique. I was like, America. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so anyway. Do you like America, the ghetto? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all don't have health care? Oh, shoot. Mm -mm. Social safety nets? No, no. Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I defended my MRP, the MRP, major research paper. And then I was like, eh, all right. So I ditched, moved to Spain, split my time between Barcelona and Lausanne and in Switzerland. And Ooh, I was just like, exciting. it was great. It was, <laughs> it was a nice year. And then I was like, yeah, for sure. I'm pretty sure I want to do this. So I studied for a month. I, I wrote my GRE in Geneva. And I used, to study, I used a bootleg copy of one of those prep books that I got online somewhere. Do what you gotta do. I mostly studied math because I figured most anthropology programs, and I was, of course, looking at the expectations and the requirements, most mm -hmm. of them don't actually have requirements for math unless they're four-field programs, in which case they might have a minimum, but it's like a very it's a pretty low minimum so I knew that I just needed to get the minimum score on the math and then you know I would I generally test well in reading and writing so 
I didn't need to study too much for the for the um, like verbal section of the GRE. Mm-hmm. Also, fuck racist in classes, standardized testing. Period. Anyways, <laughs> did that. Researched the schools that would suit my interests. I settled on four. I started writing my statement of purpose based on the examples that Duke Anthro have. I don't know if they still have them, but they had them on please, their website. Please, If y'all don't put them back on the website, <laughs> y'all have helped me. You've helped Alyssa. Helped me. Two, so far, two for two. Like, keep them on the site, please. Yes, that was that was my... I used that, followed it to the letter. I was just, like, looking at the structure, followed it. Because I didn't have anyone read my statement of purpose. <laughs> Before I submit it. <laughs> okay, let me explain. Brave. I'm brave. honestly brave or stupid. I don't know. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm first gen. I don't, I don't feel like entitled to anyone's time. So I, I mm. didn't like asking for help. So mm. I just didn't. <laughs> uh, fast forward, y'all. I got into all the programs I applied to. Okay. Period. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then I started asking people to write my letters uh, probably about a couple months in advance of the deadline. I asked four professors. So it was my supervisor, my committee member um, of my master's, and then a professor that I got a good grade from on my master's. And I also asked a professor who I had just randomly met during fieldwork, or she had actually emailed me because she found my blog on Martinique, and we met up in Martinique when I was doing my research. And she was a professor in the U.S. And so, you know, we, we still talk now. She's great. Hi. <laughs> if you listen to this. <laughs> and that was just like a unique fourth person. Um, I sent them an educational packet, which was basically a zip file with my transcripts, statements for each school. Because each school, you need to write a different statement of purpose to acknowledge the particularities of that program and also to like speak to the professors that you want to work with. And I think it had some other things that are required. I can't remember now. And then I reached out to some professors, depending on the school. You know, I generally got a good response. (laughs) Some responded to me with a long email or we met or, you know, other people just were like, I'm accepting students. I'll speak to you if you make it out the trenches. (laughs) Wow. At least you got a response. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things you do want to know is like, are these people accepting accepting students? So at Columbia, for example, you don't get accepted to the program on the basis of the professor you want to work with. The whole department decides on who gets accepted. So you're not attached to a specific professor. That's not the case at all programs. So if there is a situation where you're like, oh, this person, I really want to work with them, check and make sure that they're not going to be on sabbatical for two years <laughs> while you're studying. So you should still reach out just to find out how things work in the department. And then the one thing that I will say as a tip, because Dr. Vanessa Agar Jones, she brought this up at like a university life round table for students of color, was that she remembered my name when my application showed up on her desk because probably a year before, like while I was still doing my master's, I saw that she was teaching a course called Isle of Intellectuals. It was about Martinique. So I reached out just to ask her for the syllabus. It was just like a simple, sincere thing. I was just really interested, wanted to see how people were teaching about Martinique in anthropology. So I just said, hey, I've read your, not hey, I didn't, obviously didn't address her. <laughs> hey, girl! <laughs> hey, 
you know, it was a general, dear professor, I read your work. I was in Martinique at the same time as you actually, you know, saw you're teaching this course about Martinique. Would you mind sending me the syllabus? And she was like, sure. She attached it. And she was like, maybe we'll see each other in Madini Nasside one day. That was it. <laughs> Lo and behold, she's on my PhD committee now. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even thinking about applying at the time. It was just this like small thing, um, but enough to get a second look. So you never know what showing an interest in something will lead to. That's my long story. <laughs> long story. But I think something to point there, right, is that like sincere, like it was a sincere interaction. But yeah, I'm, I think we'll get to that a little later. I want to say, wow, that was like quite... <laughs> The journey, I, so interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated with like, how do we come here? You know, yeah. here. I mean, we talked about it in such a conceptual way. Like, how did we get mm -hmm. to anthropology? But like, what were the practical steps that we took to actually get here is another Literally. question. And so many, um, so many. <laughs> yes. So, in, you know, on, on, on that note, let's get to the questions. All right, folks, close your eyes, unless you're driving. Don't do that. But just <laughs> imagine yourself, you know, you're sitting at home. You're thinking, ugh, academia, cesspool of racism and misogynoir. Mm -hmm. Should I go there? Should I enroll in a PhD program? Yes, yes, that is what I want to do. Then you're, you start asking yourself questions. How do you select which type of program? One way to go about it? Look at the research that excites you. Then you're like, okay, how do I know what excites me? Think about which scholars you read, the scholars you admire, the work that you love. Mm -hmm. Which universities did they go to? Where do they teach now? Right? What programs did they choose? And then head online, go to the internets, and look at the current state of the program. Who's on faculty? What is the racial and gender composition of the students? Because one thing you don't want to be is a pioneer. Please, let's underscore. You do not. <laughs> you do not. You do not. <laughs> I mean, like, unless you do. But let's just say that you... <laughs> you don't want to be Ruby Bridges, you know? No. You don't, you don't want to integrate. You don't want to integrate the program. A program. <laughs> So, you know, my process for selection was, was different because I was kind of, I was happy like with what I was doing, right? I was freelancing, I was traveling. So I was like, I'll apply. And if it's for me, it's for me and I'll get in. Wow. The trust, <laughs> the trust. <laughs> it's not, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I chose anthropology because of what I said in another episode, right? Like, one of the most insightful texts I remembered, and remember at this time, I'm at least four years out of undergrad. So this was a text I remembered reading. It was by an anthropologist. And I was like, cool, I want to study with him. I applied to that one school for my master's and I got in. So I was like, all right, cool. This is a pilot study. If grad school is for me, I'll like it. And then I'll continue to do the PhDs. Now, I know that not everybody has that privilege, but in Canada, research master's programs are fully funded, like PhDs are here. So that was basically how that process went. <laughs> how about you? How did you choose your program? <sighs> how did I choose? So I, um, 
I'm fairly vocal about this. I am an alumna of, I was like alum, alumna of the Andover Institute for the Recruitment of Teachers. And so that was actually a program that Dr. Keisha Khan Perry put me on to that helped me with my statement of purpose, helped me with like choosing schools because they have a consortium of schools of like 40 plus schools and you get free applications to like 12 or they might have increased the number now, oh. but you get free applications to 12 of them. And so okay. once I made a decision in October, 2015, that I was going to go to graduate school, I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to this program. This program is going to help me. And I just chose out of their consortium. And they encouraged us to reach out to professors before we started the application process to ensure that, again, like, this is a department that actually is going to do things, do right by you, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I applied to, I ended up applying to three different types of programs. So African American and African diaspora studies programs, American studies and anthropology. And this was because when I like, would write to faculty at different anthropology departments, they would respond to me and say that my project was not anthropological (laughs) and that I should look elsewhere. Mm. Um, One professor in particular was like, yeah, just that sounds like American studies. Uh, Why don't you take it over to American studies, which is fascinating. It's also interesting that you got a lot of different suggestions as to where you should go because it wasn't just American studies. It was also like education and other ones. And it was Mm -hmm. just like, why did it seem so hard for them to find a home, you know, for your work? Yeah, well, uh, I don't know. And maybe it was just the way that I had no effing clue what I was doing <laughs> or what I was talking about. And so I would, maybe I was describing my project a certain way. And also just like kind of what Navarro, Williams, and Amad were talking about, this kind of binary self-other construction of anthropology that actually restricts the discipline's theoretical capacity. So it's like, we don't really have language in anthropology to talk about the things that you're talking about, Mm. which I've discovered as an anthropologist now, like, oh yeah, like actually I rely a lot on other disciplines Mm -hmm. to help me articulate help me bring together all the things I want to bring together and talk about in my future dissertation. All that to be said, right? Like I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college, like Alyssa, right? First person to pursue a graduate degree. I had no clue about this hidden curriculum. I had no clue that, you know, you should be talking to professors and trying to figure out if you're a good fit and things like that. I thought that I could do like this experimental ethnographic project about Black women in the U.S. Um, because I had did it in Duke's culture anthropology program. So I also was trained in Duke culture anthropology um, as an undergrad. And I thought, oh, I could just do that anywhere. Everybody's like, Duke, they're going to let me do this. I quickly learned that that was not the case Mm -hmm. like every anthro program is different i literally cannot stress enough how important it is to read the department website and i know this might sound like elementary like brendan's like what the hell why are you telling me to read the department website i'm not going to say it's from personal experience (laughs) wink wink but make sure you read the department website um and email students and faculty so that you can get a sense of whether the school will be a good fit yes so it's a it's a signal and a sign if nobody responds to you right it's a signal and a sign that like 
something might be afoot if you reach out <laughs> and someone tells you to take your work to another department. Don't just apply to schools because, you know, Columbia, Harvard, Princeton, you know, <laughs> like the Ivy League or this kind of prestigious school, because what could happen is that you could end up there and be prestigious and miserable. Mm hmm. And nobody wants that. But when it came down for me to selecting a school, I sent out 13 applications. I was, whew, I was not nearly as targeted as you. <laughs> um, but because I had to, I had to apply to like 12 schools in the consortium. Yeah, I learned so, that. People do that, I think, for McNair scholars. I learned about McNair mm -hmm. when I was going on visits. And I was like, why? I remember reading the Grad Cafe forum. If y'all aren't on that and you're thinking about going to grad school, it's a toss-up because if you are it's toxic, it's, it's toxic. toxic. If you toxic. have high anxiety, you don't want to do it. <laughs> but I remember people being like, I applied for 13 or 15 schools and I didn't get in, into any last time. And I'm like, you spent how much money? But then I learned that's that like so McNair expensive. scholars and maybe yours, like they cover the fees or, you know, their, their comp. So it's like, why not try your luck at 15? Yeah, I think Mellon, Mellon Mays, is that what it's called, does too. But yeah, I applied to 13 different schools. I got nine rejections. So I was left with four schools to choose between Columbia and three others. <laughs> um, and for me, when it came down to selection, I was like, here's my little spreadsheet. So Alyssa talked about her process, sending the packet, et cetera. <laughs> Since I'm that girl that started a year out, I was sending emails to recommenders. And since I was applying to so many different schools, mm -hmm. I chose a, a wider pool of people so that everyone wasn't writing recommendations for every school. Right. Which then made things a little bit more complicated on my end um, when sending out emails. But essentially, I, I did my own little information packet. I had color-coded grids. <laughs> And schedules for people and people on my committee who know me now I, I i tend to operate pretty much the same way like here's an information here's an update here's a grid here's a schedule here's a calendar um that's how i tend to move and my recommenders really appreciated that they were actually like thank you for sending us all this information mm -hmm. ahead of time like i sent stuff in august for them to turn in in december mm -hmm. and it was laid out and they were like, thank you for doing this because it makes it easier on us. And for those of you who like are interested in seeing those materials and you are black, I'm going to I'm going to be specific about this. Like, feel free to send me an email. It really came down to me, though, and thinking about choosing between the four schools that I had came down to stipend, cost of living in the area that I was in, the environment based on school visits. So I was able to visit three of the four places that I applied to. Mm -hmm. Or got accepted at. And then also just like the location in and of itself, like geographically. My criteria for selecting schools out of the consortium was like, I'm only going to apply to schools that have a sufficient, which really literally only means two or more Black <laughs> faculty who can support my research. And also like at least one or more Black student. Mm. I was like, if you didn't have that, I was not applying to your school. Because I did not did not want to integrate a department. I had very hostile undergraduate experience and I was not trying to replicate that in graduate school. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, my ancestors have done enough integration <laughs> and pioneering. Like, I think I can honor their sacrifice by refusing <laughs> that violence, you know? <laughs> I'm laughing, but I, I know that's, that's, that's for real. 
That's real that, talk that was, right there. That's like me being like, okay, my ancestors have actually paved the way. They've done enough. I also didn't want to be somewhere where I couldn't afford to eat on my stipend or to pay rent, which I applied to schools in California, but then when I was talking to students and they were talking about having four or five roommates mm-hmm. and paying $600 a month to sleep in a, a corner of the living room, I was like, oh, this is not the kind of life I want. No, thank you. Because it's not college, right? You're adults. You're living an mm-hmm. adult life. And, and so it's very different. Um, and I also wanted to be somewhere that was like close enough where I could see my family in South Carolina, but not necessarily close enough where they could visit me. Um, <laughs> spontaneously um and oh, so the thinking the thinking <laughs> your mind it's like close enough that i can get on a flight and the flight won't be too long but not too close that someone could like pop up on me so when you're thinking about selecting a school for those of you who asked us right you have to do so based on your priorities like if a school is un, if a program is unfunded and you know you need money to live and you don't have no fellowships or scholarships that you're bringing in with you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't stress yourself out. Do not take out loans to do a PhD. That is my opinion. Mm-hmm. But it's my opinion. It's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, it is not like going to law school. It is not like going to med school. Where after you graduate, your earning potential is going to be high enough that you can pay that loan off. No, it is not. Do not take out loans to do a PhD. PhD, period. But I think that's really important to point out that people, I think that sometimes when people hear that I'm doing a PhD, they assume that I'm, that I'm rich or that I'm, I'm drowning in debt. I do have debt from student loans, despite being Canadian. (laughs) We do still have to pay this for school. What? <laughs> However, I don't have debt for my PhD because we receive stipends. So a PhD program where you are performing research and labor in the form of teaching fellowships or research assistantships, things like that, they're generally funded. So you will receive a tuition waiver and then you will receive what's called a stipend for living expenses. Make sure that the programs that you are going to offer those things unless you got it like that and loans or savings aren't a problem. <laughs> but I think, you know, that's that's really a good segue into one of the questions that we had, which was, you know, what are our thoughts on who is able to attend graduate school? Research PhDs are funded. It's not an amazing sum of money. I think actually what universities do, in my mind, no one's ever confirmed this, but I think that they hire those uh, management consultancy companies. They say, what's the minimum amount that somebody needs to live in this city? And then that's what they pay us. And then, of course, the person that they imagine is single, healthy, Mm able-bodied. They don't have family who relies on them for money. Mm. That is who can live off of a stipend in any city. And so if you mm-hmm. have a family, that changes. If you have health challenges, you, you will have insurance in most cases, but it still costs money because y'all ain't got no health, universal health care in this country. Still, right. It still makes me sweat. If you have oh, family God. members who rely on you financially or otherwise, that's another challenge. So it comes down to researching the funding, as Brennan mentioned, and on the Grad Cafe, 
um, on that website, there is now like a spreadsheet where people talk about the funding packages that they receive at their different schools because a lot of the time this is hidden in the same way that like we don't talk about mm-hmm. we don't talk about people's salaries. It's kind of similar in the PhD world. Of course, these things should be public for transparency, but they're not because no one's going to make them do it. <laughs> and then as far as the time commitment, which was part of the question, that's a personal choice. I started my PhD at 29. A lot, I'm just aging myself in this whole episode. <laughs> I started my PhD okay. at 29. And I do have, have had some anxieties about how old I'll be when I finish. And, you know, at what age I'm going to have a stable job. I have friends who are starting families and buying homes and mm-hmm. things like that. And I'm like, hmm, I might have a job when I'm 40. <laughs> And that is stressful. When I do get too worked up about it, I'm just like, I will figure it out. You know, things will happen the way they're supposed to. (laughs) Of course, I'm not going to like adjunct for years and things like that. I'll just go back to, you know, the stuff I was doing that allowed me to travel and live a nice life (laughs) before I did this. (laughs) And now the price will go up because it'd be like doctor. Exactly. 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 Someone, oh, someone else asked, you know, if they would be able to get into a top tier school with with a degree from a small liberal arts college. I think that's one of those specific questions that we were like, ah, I don't know if we'll be able to answer that. I think, of course, it's possible. It's just going to take some work. It's going to take more work than other people. And that's just the truth of it. Because in my cohort at Columbia, I'm pretty sure half of the cohort, and I think we're six, uh, they went to Ivy Leagues at some point. I was in Canada, but my undergrad is from, you know, one of the best universities in the country. The anthropology department where I did my master's is very well known in the U.S. So it'll just take more work in terms of like getting your statement noticed and building relationships with, you know, in these universities and like finding out what it is that they need and want. But it's, of course, it's not impossible. If you have a great project and you're smart and they like you, they're going to accept you. And like, I'm going to put an asterisk on... The smart thing, because <laughs> oh, well, actually, you know what? Never mind. I'm just gonna leave it blank. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna leave it blank here because we've sat in seminars together, so I think Alyssa knows what I'm saying. Um, here we're in some group chats. <laughs> we're in some group chats. The smart thing is asterisk. Um, but I actually never really thought about that. Like, and I guess it's part of the privilege of coming from an elite institution undergrad, not really con- thinking about, oh, are, are the people from elite institutions? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about people in my cohort, yeah, I do think most of the people in my cohort actually attended Ivy League um, institutions. Ivy Leagues are definitely like Ivy Plus. Yeah, Although Ivy Plus. my cohort has quite a few international students. Yeah, and I think that it does play a role in it, uh, as you were saying, but it's also just like about the other pieces of your application. And so I know for sure for myself that my recommendations had a lot of weight in my acceptance. And I can't remember which one of my advisors mentioned it, but it was just like you, your recommendations were amazing. Mm. And that's partially because I'm undergrad, you know, I was, you know, a hot girl and I was out here. <laughs> I was out here. Um, I didn't really understand what office hours were for, but I would go and talk to professors and like build relationships with professors. 
And my recommenders actually knew me well and could speak to my potential in the department, in the discipline, like with clarity. Um, They knew Mm. about the struggles and obstacles that I had faced before Duke, you know, growing up with lots of housing insecurity, growing up very poor in South Carolina, being at Duke, trying to do the work that I was doing there, um, the scholarship that I was doing there, and like also the challenges that I faced as a student, just personally and academically, and then like what my potential would be in the academy. So they were able to like narrate that. That's so, that's so important. I'm, I think you yeah. know, to, we should underscore that as like the relationships that you have are so important. I mean, I don't know. This is going to sound so awful, but, well, not awful, but, I, like, when I tell you the, the, like, level of I have no, I had no clue what I was getting myself into. <laughs> I didn't even know who from my department was well-known and or not, like, in the discipline or not. I didn't know either. I only found out later. <laughs> you know, and so, the, yeah, like, you find out later, like, one of my recommenders, I don't think she would, she would mind me naming her, but, like, you know, like I find out later, Diane Nelson, who's a wonderful person, is also like a big name. And I'm like, oh, girl, you could have told me. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Doctor. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Diane. Um, <laughs> but like. It's because um, they don't assign their work. And you're not, yeah. you're not aware enough to like look at the citations of the work that they are assigning and then realize that they, get cited, that they get cited in everything. <laughs> right (laughs) but I see it now I'm like oh wow you're like citing my undergrad uh Caribbean history professor (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know or even like honestly my mentor from undergrad her name's Anne Maria Makudu she rolled with me through the trenches honey was shooting me in the gym was there for me through so much and like I've never seen a letter that she's written for me but I could imagine that letter being a great one mm-hmm. and something like she was she saw me through my thesis through my hard times you know <laughs> and even continued to to be a source of like support for me through Columbia and so it's important to like build sincere relationships I think mm-hmm. and like sincere is, is the thing here like I don't move from a place of like oh I need to get to know this person because they're gonna get help me get somewhere which is is one way to move yes but like I I tend not to move that way because I don't want people around me who only want to be with me because they think I'm gonna get them somewhere Mm -hmm. that that's important to keep in mind like as you're applying it's like who do I have these authentic relationships with like don't chase after a name your recommenders should know you well enough to write great letters for you we also had some questions about like self-care, navigating graduate school as Black women, how to deal with racism, massage noir, how to literally survive. And honey, these are heavy questions. These are heavy things. So I'm going to spin it to you first. <laughs> mm. Alyssa, how do you survive as a Black woman in academia? Like, how do you care for yourself? <laughs> This is going to I'm so embarrassed. No, I'm not embarrassed, but it does sound real basic. No, you're a hot girl. So when I started the PhD, I dated. Hot girl. A lot. Real hot girl shit. A lot. Real hot girl shit. (laughs) For context, wow, I'm really exposing myself on this episode. I was (laughs) fresh, fresh. Who knew? Who knew this would be the episode? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I was fresh out of a six and a half year relationship. So I went on dates. 
like every weekend blessed <laughs> every weekend i was on i was on at least one sometimes two sometimes i was double booking niggas like Amen. <laughs> do it. But yo, do it. Do do it. Oh my gosh. So my 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 now partner, he was actually the third person I went on a date with. No, fourth. Sorry, because I double booked that. <laughs> Amen. Get the meals paid for. Also, dating is a good way to get your meals paid for. Save that stipend. Save some money. For Fenty Beauty. Save, Save the stipend for Fenty Beauty and get someone to pay you. To pay to go on a date. Exactly. Yes. So he was he was the fourth person that I went on a date with. Although we didn't, you know, we didn't become official until many, many months later. So there were <laughs> many dates in my first year history. But um, I'm I'm fresh off a breakup. I'm in a new city. And I thought, what better way to discover new places and meet people, you know, that are outside of this bubble of academia, which I think is really important. But what better way to do that than go on dates? So, mm. the takeaway. <laughs> I love it. I, I'm just, <laughs> I was in a relationship when I came to New York, so. Mm. Now, mm. it was it was great, because you'd just be like, oh, I'm, I've lived here for like a month, and people were like, oh my God, okay, I have to take you to, you know, first Saturdays at the Brooklyn Museum, or like, oh, okay, we have to do this, you know? It was really fun. Mm. And so, you know, what I, what I would say the takeaway from that then is, is like, get some hobbies that don't involve people on campus. So, yes. you know, bes- besides my dates. <laughs> <laughs> Make dating your hobby. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it actually was a hobby for me. It was, it was really fun. I'm trying to remember if I had any like funny situations where I ran into people from campus. Oh, I ran into you. Oh my yes. gosh. The first year. <laughs> like, you go forget. Oh. At, the, at the Angela Davis talk, I was there with uh, with someone. Bicycle. Bicycle, yeah. Uh, at the Angela Davis talk. Yes, yes. Okay. See, that's what happens when you start bringing people into academic stuff. Exactly. No, you don't, you don't want to do that. So besides besides the dating, I, you know, pre-pandemic, I was also taking dance hall dance classes. Mm. And I just, I love dance because it kind of it just breaks apart this body and mind binary but in a very material way rather than just a conceptual one right you know you have to inhabit both at the same time in a way that like when you're reading or watching tv or just like lifting weights doesn't really offer so I really I I really like dance for that reason and it, it was a good way to kind of decompress and I miss going to my dance hall classes and so the reason I say that you know it you don't want to necessarily involve other academics is because it, it helps you to realize that this racist, misogynoirist institution is not the be-all, end-all. And I think that's one of the things that makes academics so the way that they are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting, unique, is that, you know, they are literally institutionalized from birth to death. Like, most go straight from high school, straight to undergrad, straight to grad school, straight into an academic job and it shows like it really it shows because it does. because it's like for them there's no world outside of these relations these institutional relations and it creates a very interesting environment that you should try to escape <laughs> i think maybe we talked about it the article or maybe chloe sent it in uh like the number of professors or there's like a significant percentage of people who are professors their parents were also professors Mm -hmm. so like when you talk about institutionalized from birth to death it's like quite literally 
the case yeah um for many people in academia and i'm very thankful for the fact that like i took a break between undergrad and graduate school and for Me those too. of you who are in in your last year in undergrad and thinking about graduate school take a break i know it, it doesn't feel like you have time but you're you're young mm-hmm. if you're a traditional student in undergrad right you're young and i promise you life is there graduate school will be there <laughs> It shows in the work, too. Yeah. It shows and in the work. Yeah, it shows, shows in how you think. It shows in how you relate to people. And it shows in, like, your your mental health as well. Because the, the thing that also, the shift that you have to make from undergrad to graduate school is that in undergrad, school is your life, right? That's your friends. That's your social whatever. That's your source of political whatever. That's your source of study. Whereas in graduate school, it's like you're an adult. And so you go to school for school, right? You are building, this is like job training, essentially, quote unquote, right? So like you're building professional relationships, you're understanding your discipline, you're moving through, but your everything is not on campus, right? There's the expectation Mm -hmm. that you leave campus and you do other things, unless unless you're an international student who does stay on campus. And then um, I think there are other things that they do to accommodate students who can't do that. But right there, there is a shift that you have to make in your life for undergrad. And having a break between actually helps you make that shift like mentally and gives your body a break. Mm-hmm. And, ha- and just helps you realize that the university is not the only thing that exists in the world. <laughs> right. And like, there are people and places outside of that. I think, though, to think about what you were saying earlier about the dating, your hot girl life, which <laughs> I, oh God. you know, I did not have, <laughs> I did not have the privilege of having a hot girl life when I came to New York. I was in a relationship and I'm no longer with that person. But the person I'm with now is like not an academic. And I know your partner is not an academic. And I think that helps both of us. So Lisa and I spend a lot of time together <laughs> these days, right? It helps us like yep. take a break. We know we could go to our partners and talk about things that have nothing to do with our research. And that really helps. And I think that one of the most important things that I can say to someone who wants to survive graduate school, right, with your soul intact is to find your people. Yes, 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 yes. And like, keep in mind that your people may not always look like you. So we all know that saying, not all skin folk are kin folk. And I, I agree with that. I abide by that. And I'll say that, like, though I do feel safest, like, in community with Black women and Black queer and trans folks, I know that not all skin folk are skin folk. But what I did when I came, when I walked onto Columbia's campus and I was like, oh, oh, you know, I've heard a, heard a couple of anti-Black comments here and there. And I was like, oh, I need, I need to actually, I get what people were telling me about graduate school, I need to find community. And so I built a community around me comprised of people who would be willing to read my work and to offer feedback. And because it's important, who wanted to share their work with me. Mm. Because there are people who want to read you and not read you in the colloquial sense, but I read your work and not offer, and offer feedback, but aren't willing to reciprocate. And that's kind of like, that's a power, that's a power dynamic. Mm. Right. I surrounded myself with people who treated university staff. So that means administrators, custodians, facility people, right, with sense. I watch how people interact with people. And if you treat someone who's working at a school differently or less respectfully than a student or faculty member, 
I have questions about your character. Mm. Um, right. I, I was like, I'm looking for people who don't associate themselves with toxic, harmful or violent people unless they're forced to do so because of power dynamics. Like, oh, that's the only professor in your department who studies why the sky is blue. It's like you have to. <laughs> But like, honestly, would not survive graduate school if it weren't for my community at Columbia. Uh, Alyssa is part of that community. You know, the other Black folks in the department, several people in my cohort, et cetera. And then my biological and chosen family that are outside of academia. Right? Like I cultivated a life where I treat my studies like a job. And I have a life, a beautiful life outside of them, like lovely life outside of them. I have friends outside this shit. Like I don't, like not all of my friends are academics, mm-hmm. thankfully. And I say the Ivy Tower is not my end all be all, which is so funny that we both said that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Y'all sometimes, so we actually do like type up notes and things like that. And we don't always read what the other person's going to say. So <laughs> <laughs> we just kind of had a moment of synchronicity here. Love to see um, it. Love to see it. <laughs> you love to see it. And I would say like, it's a job that I do because I enjoy reading and writing and talking to people. And additionally, for those of you who are like, okay, I want to know how to survive graduate school. Uh, Dr. Christine Pinnock, who used to teach at Columbia before she got free, and this is her language, got free. I'm um, dead. And and (laughs) decided to work for herself. She told me at the beginning, I'm so grateful I took her class first semester. She was like, Go home, sit down, grab a piece of paper, and create a list of things that bring you comfort, joy, and ease. And put it on your wall and refer to it. Because there will be moments, she was like, when shake is hectic, right? That is the list of things that you do to bring you joy. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pass that to you. Create your own comfort list, your own joy list. It could have things like calling grandma, minded, calling grandma, calling dad. Doing my makeup, putting my Fenty Beauty on, um, taking a bath, things that I enjoyed that were low cost. Because the truth of the matter is there will always be another sentence to write. There will always be another book to read. And these days there will always be another MF and Zoom panel to attend. (laughs) Another one. Another one, right? But the work is always going to be here. And if you don't take care of yourself, though right? There won't be a you of sound mind and spirit to do that work right. And so you'll be coming to it all fragmented and frayed and abused and depleted. And it's not worth it, right? Like this white supremacist institution does not deserve your all or even honestly your best. Let's be real. (laughs) Let's be real. That was so well thought out. (laughs) Mine was just like, look at me being like cute. I am not always the (laughs) most like spiritually intentional person (laughs) if but that's just because you know i grew up in a church so that's i think that's just different but if i could have got on some dates honey please Mm. well uh, uh, on that note somebody (laughs) actually asked about decolonizing (laughs) syllabi you know people talk about letting anthropology burn people talk about reforming or you know fixing this institution and I take the same tack that somebody who wrote a tweet that kind of went academic viral said which is a lot of these people in these institutions need to die or retire before we can (laughs) have a better one and that is 
that's kind of Ooh. the tack that I take. Um, not, I mean, not to say they're not. I'm, can you argue with truth? Can you argue with some of these institutions are actually embodied? And so, no matter how many people you hire, mm-hmm. right? If you still have folks who stand by the old vanguard, it's going to be very difficult to to move the needle. So, yeah, no. I mean, can you argue with that? So, on that note, I was just thinking decolonizing the university as a whole because of the question about decolonizing syllabi. I think after reading the essay, decolonization is not a metaphor, I'm just so skeptical of this whole decolonizing industrial complex. (laughs) Like everyone and everything claims to be decolonial, even when it isn't. And so, I mean, the way to have a decolonized syllabus is to not have one at all, right? Like that, that, that. The worship of the written word is itself a part of white supremacy culture, right? So Mm -hmm. there's that. And then that kind of actually brings me, so then like, what can you do, right? And then that brings me to another question about being an academic without a university or, you know, without access to the literature. And I think more literature is being put online. You know, it's also accessible via library card. I think most libraries will have a subscription to JSTOR, which, you know, my partner asked me once, is that still a thing? It is. Still use JSTOR. It ain't going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I would say, if you're like, how can I, how can I practice academicness, practice intellectualism? You know, I'd say just listen to people, seek out the patterns in those conversations and then develop theories about it, right? Like when you listen to people talk, ask yourself, what are they saying? And that's how you be an intellectual in your everyday life. Right. But then the original question, it was about decolonizing. So, you know, the process. And I think our decolonizing methodologies course was was an excellent example of that. We also took critical indigenous and native studies together. And, you know, we read Mm -hmm. like the whole Turtle Island canon (laughs) and then some, you know, and that was incredible. But, you've you know, you've taken courses outside of the anthropology department. So what what are what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, well, I have many thoughts, <laughs> but I agree with you, especially thinking about, okay, decolonized syllabus would mean there is no university really to even put forth this thing. And I also, I think people think that decolonized means like representative or like intersectional, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, you know, it's not quite the same thing, but I really... I don't know, I'm sitting with this, yeah, like intellectualizing, thinking about what people are saying. But I will push push back against that a little bit because there was a rapper who shall remain unnamed who was like, I don't read, but I think. And then started asking questions that had been answered already. Mm. And so I think it's 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 good to like to sit, to think, to listen to people. And then if you are able to read or be a part of a reading group or be a part of like an, what do they call it? Alt act or like non, like a secondary or what do you call it? Academic spaces that aren't associated with the university. I don't know what they're called, but like being a part of those spaces because not all, like the Academy does not own intellectual thought, Mm -hmm. right? So like there are lots of movements that are built from from those spaces. When I'm thinking about building a quote decolonizing or decolonial syllabus, I kind of understand the controversy behind it, like in a historical sense. Like, yeah, there are issues with putting certain people on your syllabi because of X, Y, and Z. But 
now I think we're in a place where it's like, yo, if you want your students to read Asada Shakur in an English class or whatever, put it on a syllabus. And if somebody has something to say, figure out how to justify it in a way that makes sense to them. There's no way for you to like, quote, be decolonial and be the favorite in a department or be like the one that the dean loves the most or be the Mm -hmm. one that like, if you want to be decolonial, you're going to have to get let go of being accepted by authority, right? And being like approved of by authority. Like if you want to be radical or whatever, like you have to let that go and just do what you want to do and see the consequences of that. See those consequences out, right? Or protect yourself as much as possible within that. If you want your syllabi to be more representative, quote unquote, then do do the work to make it so, right? Like don't just have a feminist week oh. where you talk, you read feminist literature or a black woman's week mm. where I've seen courses that do that, where the course will be like economics. Well, I'm, I'm just naming a random subject, but like economics. And then I'll have a week where it's like, and this is what women have to say about <laughs> economics. And this is what black people mm-hmm. have to say about economics. And it's like, no, like actually integrate that work throughout the course so that students can see that all these people are doing this writing all along um, the exactly. way. And I actually know people who actively refuse to actually teach white um, canon stuff or even anything normative. And they actually prioritize marginalized voices. So you'll look at their syllabi and they don't have a single Foucault, mm. a single uh, Bordeaux, a single, you know, Judy Butler on there. And, they, you know, but they, they prioritize, they prioritize the voices of, you know, black and brown, queer and trans people. Start with that, right? And like, think about who's not invited into this conversation around economics that needs to be here, right? Do they write academic stuff, first of all, right? If they don't, like, what do they do? Do they sing? Do they dance? Do they write poetry, right? And then incorporate work that allows you to have the conversations that matter about the things that matter to students, right? And matter to you, whatever work you're trying to do. Yeah, I think our podcast has shown that you don't have to go to Foucault and you don't have to go to Judith Butler to have rigorous mm-hmm. and critical discussions around a lot of topics, any topic pretty much. And where we are at is just the tip of the iceberg. So there's so mm-hmm. much more to think about, discover, read. We also are very particularly positioned, right? Like we read for the most part texts that are in English produced by people Mm -hmm. in the North American Academy for the most part, you know? So there's, there are, there's a lot of work that even we haven't incorporated or haven't been able to think about as yet, as much as we would like to. Right. Okay. So we're trying to get through these questions. Y'all, this is going to be a long episode. You're just going to have to bear (laughs) with us and love it. Bear with us. There are so many questions. So someone asked about how to shake the doubt about going to grad school that professors are kind of putting into them, giving them. Mm. I think it's hard mm. to hard to really say without knowing exactly what the professors are saying. But the truth is, grad school is hard. Period. And one thing you'll learn, one thing you'll see if you ask a grad student, you will doubt yourself a lot. You will question whether you're smart enough, whether mm-hmm. you're cut out for it. Mm-hmm. I was just saying this two weeks ago. <laughs> On top of that, you are underpaid. You're under-resourced. 
And that's in terms of support for your work, but mm-hmm. also support for your mental and physical health, support mm-hmm. for your life generally. <laughs> and that's just a baseline, right? Like that is just for the average student. I'm putting that in quotes because, you know, the average student is basically like a cis, white, able-bodied male. Like mm-hmm. that's just a baseline for everybody. But don't be queer. Don't be trans or poor or racialized or disabled or undocumented. Like, don't be, don't be having a family member who's chronically ill. Ooh, child, don't do that. And for the, and for the, for the love of all things holy, don't be or become a parent. That, <laughs> especially, especially if you are, I would say if you are a person who was assigned male at birth and you live your life as a cis man, people don't question being a father, but if you are giving birth to people, mm-hmm. um, that is with the, the whole, ooh, parent. Oh, ooh. Ooh. <laughs> you want to ruin your career by being a parent? Yeah, it, it comes with a whole host of microaggressions. Mm-hmm. There are people who will treat you like shit who will disregard mm-hmm. you, who will undermine mm-hmm. you. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about people in all of those categories. They won't have an institutional framework for how to help you or how to support you. I mean, in that essay, Sitting at the Kitchen Table that we read, you know, the authors wrote that this institution and its structure was built by white men who never fathomed that we would be walking its halls or sitting at its seminar table or mm-hmm. teaching in its classrooms. Mm-hmm. But however, you might just find people who will. People who believe in you and your work and who do as much as they can to help you get through and get your work into the world. I think both of us have talked about people who have helped us get here. Like we did mm-hmm. not do this on our own. And so the one thing I will say is that if you do want to go to grad school, have a purpose because please because people (laughs) don't just go because you're like oh I don't know what to do after undergrad have a purpose because people are going to put doubts in your head you are going to doubt yourself the whole time (laughs) and the one thing that you need is something you can hold on to and say this is why I'm doing this Brendan once said during a talk that we gave and I I'll never forget because who it hit, it hit. She said, I cannot rest until black women and girls are free. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) I stayed very calm because we were on talk, but I was just like, "Mm, what? My face could have been a meme inside. But anyways, I I mean, I don't want to make assumptions or like put words in your mouth, but like, is that, you know, Mm -hmm. is that what what helps you get through? Yeah, I would say, like, first of all, I don't, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> but it's it's true. Like, you know, sometimes I'll be in my bag, you know, LOL. I'm just kidding. Um, But like, it, it's very true, right? These, these days, what gets me through is, is the love of my people, rightly construed. I, I often think about the Black girls who are now young Black women. I tell, oh my God, I'm going to cry. 
let me take a breath. Um, right, and the black and brown queer and trans students that I taught, they keep me going, like thinking of them, thinking of making the world a better place for them and for the ones they love. Keep me going. I think about my relatives, my mother, my grandma, my aunt, uh, my ancestors, my friends, and like how this world has truly, truly have us fucked up. Even Asada Shakur sometimes that comes into my mind when I'm really feeling down and how she like reminds us that it's our duty to fight for our freedom and it's our duty to win. And I really think about what you said, like, don't do this because you think it's something you're supposed to do. Like you could get a you could get a job. You could get a job and not be coming on twenty eight with thirty thousand dollars a year. It's like you could get a job. Please enter into this work with a purpose because that is what will sustain you and will also draw community to you and, mm. and make you feel like this work is actually helping you complete that purpose versus it feeling like a detraction from it. Also, don't think that this is the only place where you can do that work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember this was on another talk that we gave. See, I remember everything you say. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and I'm like, ooh, I, I forget what I say so but, much. But, <laughs> you know, you were talking about how if that is the kind of work that you want to do, academia doesn't have to be the place because if you think about it, if you look at, if you read an ethnography, sometimes you'll see that they were doing their field work in 2013 and the book isn't published until 2021. So this, this process, this institution the system it moves slowly Mm -hmm. and if what you want to see is change and you can see that you are making a difference in that moment academia might not be for you (laughs) that said there are ways that you can use your position in academia to do a lot of that kind of work to do a lot of activist work some people say that comes a little bit later it's possible but just know that you won't always see the changes that you are hoping or expecting to see immediately. Right. Like a lot of times I think about my work and as a PhD outside of the activist quote work or whatever working on, however you want to label it that I do of like in a PhD, I'm able to influence what people read about Mm. black women and girls. Right. And like, my major intervention in this work is like, oh, I'm changing how people read mm-hmm. and possibly how they think about Black women and girls when they encounter my work. But if I want to literally change the material conditions of Black women and girls, that work has to happen outside of the academy. Mm-hmm. So if that is a distinction that helps you think through that, I, I, hope, I hope it helps you because that's what, that's what grounds me. I'm like, oh yeah, like I'm doing this so that 20 years from now, somebody will read this essay and say, now I don't see Black women and girls in the same way as I did before. But the work that I do when I get off of Zoom, get off of Audacity, <laughs> right, it's for, it's for Black women and girls in Baltimore here and now. Mm. So, yeah. Great. So I think that to close out, we should probably answer the question, what's the best advice you've received about grad school? Hmm. Ooh, okay. So the summer before I matriculated, I was advised not to read a thing, honey, a thing, <laughs> not even a fictional thing, right? Because I would read enough in graduate school and I'm so glad I listened. Like, mm. 
you read enough in grad school. There's no book that you need to read right before you get up to help prepare you. Like, don't, don't do that. And then also secondly, was like to treat this shit like a job. Mm-hmm. Like your cohort are your colleagues. They don't have to be your friends. They can become your friends, but they don't have to be. Right? Your advisors are your mentors. They're not your parents. Not your parents. Um, not your parents. Underscore, underline. <laughs> right? <laughs> graduate school can feel infantilizing but remember these these are your colleagues you're growing up as a colleague with these folks right they're your mentors not your parents and to set boundaries around my academic work like it's a nine to five it's easy it was easier for me to do that in coursework than it is now because I'm in the field but the nine to five thing was really hidden mine was more like 10 to three but it was (laughs) it was hidden it was hidden No, I do the same. I've been doing the same this week and I've actually found myself so productive, so incredibly productive, Mm -hmm. just being like, I'm working from this time to that time and I've been really getting things done. For me, the best advice, I was like, I don't know anything because we were talking about before we were recording that everything you're listening to right now, you're going to forget. It's not going to really register is going to be really hard for it to really like stick in your mind Mm -hmm. (laughs) until you're actually Mm -hmm. in grad school and Mm -hmm. so I couldn't really remember any advice but one thing that I thought of when you were talking earlier about your you know about finding a community of people who will read your work and give you feedback that that would be the advice that I've heard that I've experienced that I know works. So my my master's cohort, I think there are about eight of us. Five of us now are doing PhDs. And even my supervisor acknowledged that it was pretty out of the ordinary <laughs> for, for that many graduates of a program to be doing PhDs. And then on top of that, at these like top programs. So besides being... See y'all. I see y'all. Okay, start. <laughs> I am, yeah. You know, why not? Quick. And so I think that, you know, besides being smart and driven, I also attribute it to us creating a culture that was intellectually generous. So we read each other's work, we challenged each other, and after some of the talks that I have seen in my time, you know, you know when the person doesn't have a friend, neither fish nor fowl, as my mom would say, (laughs) to read their work. (laughs) like you know when that's happened to them and so people always say that academia is this solitary enterprise but just like make sure the people you find the community you build make sure that they will not let you get up in front of an audience and look stupid don't just just make sure because I've seen it and I'm crying Uh, I had this when I was 12 I had this realization that a lot of people think love comes without like accountability or without um correction Mm. so like oh if i love this person i'm not going to tell them that's that something they did is wrong or something they said is wrong and that's not love y'all that's that's weird that's something else it's it's not love (laughs) it's enabling like it's enabling it's i don't even there's a word for it and i can't even think of it right now but it's it's just it's not love right and so if you're building a community that's rooted in love right accountability and correction is there and like you have people who love you enough to say actually this term that you're using mm, mm -mm." or actually maybe you don't want to say this sentence Mm, maybe you should think about it like this right and like 
think of those acts of correction and critique as like love and not as like someone attacking you at your core. That'll really help you get through. Now, if, if it's coming from a loving place, if it's coming from an abusive place, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's very different. But yes, find you a fish, fowl, or friend who will uh, tell you <laughs> when what you're saying doesn't make sense. Before we close out, of course, we're, we're taping this 24 plus hours after the reported killing of Micaiah Bryant. And we wanted to just quickly honor her and also two other women, um, two women, excuse me, because Micaiah Bryant is a child, two women, Remy Fennell and Jada Peterson. Remy and Jada um, were two Black trans women who were recently killed both of them in Charlotte, North Carolina. Micaiah Bryant was a young Black girl who was killed by the police in Ohio. We want to take some space to honor all of you here and the women whose names we don't know and the girls whose names we don't know who experience violence and say that we are working towards a world in which we don't lose Black women and girls to patriarchal and state-sanctioned violence. And we send love to their families and their loved ones and also to those around the world, right, who are mourning them closely and deeply. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for y'all today. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by yours truly, Alyssa James, and the lovely Brendan Times. Our intern is Mankute Whaley, and music is by Segnon Tebow. The podcast is distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association, and this season of the podcast is generously funded by the Racial Justice Mini-Grant Program at Columbia University, which is funded through a partnership with the Office of University Life, the Office of the Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement, and the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life. Further funding has been provided by grants from the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion, the Arts and Science Graduate Council, and of course, donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for all of your support again, again, and again. Um, We love hearing from you, and we've really appreciated the conversations that we've been having in the DMs and the email inbox. So if you would like to get in contact with us, head on over to zorasdaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios, contact info, and other ways to support the podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. All right, everyone. We're still in a pomp la mousse, so be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye.